Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. It's not charisma that makes a person convincing, it's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that back, they let that conviction shine through in whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's Sunil Gupta. He's the author of Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Why do some investors and some bosses believe in some people and not others? Another author, Daniel Pink, describes this book, Backable, as the secret weapon to bringing your idea to life. Before we dive into Backable, though, let me just update you on the winner of our last book, No Sex at Work. Congrats, Melanie Marshall, the book is yours, and it will be on its way shortly to you. And remember to go into the draw for each episode's book. Please get in touch or follow Books at Work on Instagram. Right, let's get the speed read of Backable started. A bit about Sunil Gupta. He's worked for a bunch of places, including Mozilla and Groupon. He teaches innovation at Harvard, and most importantly, he created the startup called Rise. He raised millions of dollars to launch it and sold it for millions more. He also went on to being the face of failure, to the new face of innovation, according to the New York Times. This book, Backable, lights the path on how to pitch ideas and get others to really listen and to take a chance on you. It's really helpful and relevant for any one of us who are trying to get an idea over the line, whether it's to convince our bosses, to get our colleagues to understand, to get our team members on board with an idea, and for all of us who are working on a new business or an innovation or a new enterprise, it's got some great tips in here for you as well. Sunil packages up what he's learned from his experiences and from talking to others into these seven steps for pitching ideas. These are the seven steps that course-corrected his life and career. He's a wonderful storyteller in the book and in our conversations that we'll get to shortly. I'll pick up some of the elements of those seven steps here and Sunil brings them and others to life in our chat together. So how do you get others to take a chance on you and back your ideas? Well, first up, start with you. What do you think about your idea or pitch? Be the most passionate advocate for your idea. We need to be inspired by our ideas or pitch before we can inspire anyone else. And it also takes time to incubate your ideas, so take that time. Don't share half-baked ideas. If you do, we can't really expect to get a fully baked response. Another tip is to build an emotional runway. We often hear talk about having a financial runway with an emotional runway that helps us get buy-in and backing, and it makes sure we have the energy to push an idea forward. Draw people in and keep them hooked. This is a pretty key one. Tell stories of substance with a central character and a central reader or listener. Have a specific person in mind and their customer or user experience. Know the key moments that need extra focus and tell that story when you're pitching an idea or proposal. 
We all emotionally connect to people, not concepts. So tell a human story, an experience. When sharing an idea or pitch, create this thing called an empathy bridge. Understand what the people you're aiming at are seeing, what they feel, and then talk the numbers. Another key thing is this idea around do the work. Intoxicate with the effort you've made. Show dedication and drive. Surprise people with your insights. Sunil talks more about this when we chat to him too. Make it feel inevitable. Show that your vision isn't unique, it's just slightly ahead. What Sunil has learned is that a backable pitch communicates that an idea is inevitable, not that it's new. Turn outsiders into insiders. Bring others into the high-level idea and open it up for discussion and development. Make it about us, not you. Get others involved in developing the idea. Can you think of situations that might have gone differently if you'd done some of these things? I certainly can. So let's get Sunil to tell us more about these ideas. Welcome, Sunil. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Now, we always start with a question. Where in the world are you today? And what's the view out your window? (laughs) So I'm outside of Detroit, Michigan. I'm very close to the town that I grew up in called Novi, Michigan, which is about 20 minutes outside of uh, of Detroit. And um, uh, the view outside of my room where I'm talking to you right now is of a play structure that I have for my two daughters. They are not on that plane structure at the moment, but I'm sure they will be at some point during this interview. Sounds wonderful. Thank you. Now, I want to kick off with a question around who is this book for? Because I've got a lot out of it professionally for not only my ideas, but how I work in the workplace. Who's the book for? Yeah. I mean, oftentimes you hear you hear a word like backable and you think it's for celebrities and CEOs, but it's really it's really for anyone who has an idea. And, you know, I think we all have unused creativity and whatever type of change that we're trying to make, whether that be with our own career, whether that be inside our community or inside our company, the gist of it is that we never do it alone. We need hiring managers, we need teams, we need partners, investors, even friends and family to come along for the ride. So how do you convince people to take a chance on you? So Sunil, there was one story that really stood out for me in the book about someone who went to extraordinary lengths to be backable. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. It's you know, the the in, a couple of years ago, Time magazine named Demyanti Hingarani a trailblazer, and her story is extraordinary because. She grew up and spent a lot of her early childhood in a refugee camp right on the border of Pakistan and India. Uh, No running water, no electricity, um, but she did something remarkable. She taught herself how to read. And I know you're a big reader and, and Anna and, and, you know, and, and she was as well. And And the first book that she read from cover to cover was the biography of Henry Ford. And she decided that she wanted to one day become an engineer with Ford Motor Company, which is just like, it's just an impossible sort of vision for somebody in under those circumstances in that time uh, for a woman to want to do that. And so most people dismissed her, but her parents got behind the dream and they, they saved every penny they had to get her on a boat to America where she ended up getting a scholarship to Oklahoma State University 
She graduated as the only female in her class. The day after graduation, she goes to Detroit, Michigan, where she applies for her dream job. And his hiring manager comes into the room and he looks at her resume and he looks at her and he says, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she says, yeah. He says, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, we actually don't have any female engineers working here right now because this, this was the 1960s. And Ford Motor Company was actually in its heyday. It was doing very well. It had thousands upon thousands of engineers on staff, but not a single one of them was a woman. And so in this moment, Damiyanti Hingarani is deflated. She feels rejected. She gets up and she grabs her purse and her resume, and she slowly begins to walk out of the room. And then almost in this just last sort of ditch moment, she turns around and she summons all of the courage that she possibly can. And she tells this guy her story about all the struggle that had to happen for her to be here and how unlikely it really was for her to be in this room right now. And she says to him, look, you know, things are changing. And if you don't have any female engineers on staff, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And it was in this moment that a middle manager from suburban Michigan decides to take a chance on this refugee from the other side of the world. And Demyanti Hingarani becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer, 1967. And I love that story because it inspired so many people and inspired, you know, inspired an organization many years later called Girls Who Code. It inspired immigrants who are hoping for a better day. It has inspired women in the workforce. And, and it inspired me because Demethi Hingarani is my mom. I just love that story. It was right at the beginning of the book, and I just, I just really, really loved it. And I loved how you told it uh, in the book, but also just now. So thank you so much, Sunil. Thank you for letting me tell it. Yeah. One thing that really resonated with me was a comment in the book where you said, um, uh, "How do you get around something that sounds really exciting in your head, but really uninspiring when it comes out of your mouth? What, what, what's that about?" Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it happens, I think, to all of us where where we we are we are surrounded by friends and surrounded by family, and and all of a sudden, I, an idea strikes um, our colleagues, and we just want to blurt it out and share it right away, and then we sort of look around the room or we look at the Zoom screen, and, and we realize that like they're not nearly as excited about our idea as as we are, and that happens all of the time. You know, one of the things that I found when I was looking inside companies is that. You know, most great ideas inside companies, those ideas that they look back on and say, hey, why don't we do that? Most of those ideas didn't actually get killed inside the conference room. They didn't get killed inside formal meetings. They got killed inside hallways. They got killed inside parking lots and in very casual conversations because, again, we, we blurted it out, didn't get the reaction we were looking for. And then we kind of stuff it into a mental drawer and we kind of walk away from it because it's deflating. We, we, you know, and, and, and anytime we come up with anything new, it's fragile. And so are we, you know, Jerry Seinfeld has this great quote, which is like, never share that day's material, no matter how good you think it is. You never want to, you never want to do that until you actually build what we call in the book conviction. So tell me about the conviction. What, what, yeah. what is that? And who, who do you have to convince first? Yeah, well, you know, you have to convince yourself first. And one of the things that I, I was surprised to find when I started writing this book, and to write this book, I spent time with hundreds of backable people, you know, 
Oscar-winning filmmakers, to celebrity chefs, to founders of iconic companies, to leaders within organizations. And, and, and what I found, what I, what I expected to find is that all of them were going to be highly charismatic people. That's what I thought would happen. But that did not turn out to be the case. Of course, some of them were extroverted and gregarious, but, but I would say the vast majority of them were not. It's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that back. They let that conviction shine through in whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. So, how do you do that? And how, yeah, yeah how do you build that conviction and yeah. portray it in a way that's not weird or overwhelming? Yeah, I mean, you know, and and it really comes back to that moment where all of a sudden inspiration strikes and you have that choice as whether or not to share it. And one of the things that backable people do is they tend to catch themselves in that moment and they sort of ask themselves, is this an idea that I have low conviction for or high conviction for in this moment? And the way to think about conviction is not necessarily that you have perfect answers, but that you're able to have a back and forth where somebody can press on the idea and it won't crack immediately. In other words, one way to think about it is, is this a chocolate M&M where they squeeze on it and it just cracks? Or is this a peanut M&M where now you actually have something inside? It's not a piece of steel, but you're not, but it's not going to crack immediately because you've thought about it enough and you're willing to have that back and forth. And what backable people do is they say, if this is a chocolate M&M, I'm not going to share this immediately. And instead, I'm going to take what we call in the book incubation time, which is to put a peanut inside my idea. And to, during this incubation time, I mean, people spend this in different ways. It can be, it can be literally talking this out in front of a video camera and creating videos. I've seen people do that. Some people like to draw. I like to write my idea out, or I literally just start writing free form what what what's this all about who's it for why does it matter but i think the one there's there, there are sort of two actually very important things that i like to keep in mind now with incubation time one is that instead of just wearing what the excited hat at some point in time take that hat off and put on your critic hat and, and think about what are the top two to three objections to this idea? What I found is that backable people tend to steer into the objections of their own ideas because it wins over a tremendous amount of credibility when you're inside the room and you can talk about why an idea makes perfect sense, but also talk about what their probable, probable objections are and then talk through those. That, 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 that tends to win over audiences much better than just simply talking about why it's great. The second thing is to really put an end date on your incubation time, because we know that you could, you could sit on an idea for literally ever, right? And people do. And so you have to sort of at some point in time say, all right, enough, enough building conviction. Now it's time to go share it. And one of the ways that I like to do that is by calling up a friend and saying, hey, three weeks from now, I'd like to share this idea with you. And usually the friend will be like, well, yeah, sure. What's this all about? And I'll say, you know what? I can't tell you right now. But three weeks from now, I'd like to share this with you. Now, now I have enough time to build my conviction, but not so much time that I can sit on it forever. You mentioned the uh, steering into objection. And I find that found that a bit uncomfortable when I was reading that because in my experience, um, when I'm pitching something, if I put the objection yeah. up first, I worry that it's going to swallow the whole thing and it's going to, mm. you know, people are going to focus on that. How do you do what? How do you do that in a way that's uh, that helps you get to discussion about the idea 
Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really, it's a really great point. And, and I, I, that was my fear as well. And so I would never bring up the objections to my idea. The person who really brought this to my attention was Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn. And the story that he told me was that, you know, when he was founding LinkedIn, this was 2003, and it was shortly after the bubble had burst. And so what, 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 what he was finding is that, that investors had zero interest in investing in internet companies that were not generating revenue. And LinkedIn at that time was not generating a dime of revenue. And today it's like billions of revenue, but at that time, nothing. And he knew that was on their minds. And his rationale was, look, if something is going to be on somebody's mind, you may think that it's not part of the conversation, but it actually is part of the conversation because it's nagging at them in the back of their mind. And they're not necessarily tuned in to what you're saying until those objections are heard. So typically what ends up happening is people will sort of stay silent. They'll kind of passively, but not fully listen to what you have to say. And then during Q&A, they'll bring up their objections. But the problem with that now is that you've kind of not had their full attention all the way up until that point. They haven't been tuning into the stronger parts of your pitch. And so his, his rationale is you might as well get those objections out first. And again, you don't need to have perfect answers, but yeah, let's get those out first. Let's spend the first 15 minutes and then say, you know what, why don't we come back to that? And I want to talk to you a little bit more about some of these things, but now at least people feel like it is part of the conversation. It's not nagging them anymore. Before we got onto the conversation, you said you were a storyteller and that storytelling and central characters is such a core part of the book and your um, approach to being backable. Tell us about your thoughts about central characters and how that works. Yeah, no, storytelling has been something that I've been, you know, we, we talk a lot about, especially in the world of business now, you know, there are classes being taught about storytelling and business. And, you know, I think sometimes it's misunderstood because, you know, it's not getting up in front of a room and saying, hey, you know, once upon a time, this is what happened, right? There's a story and there's substance and great storytellers are able to bring in both. But I think it's really important to note that it's stories that really excite people and bring them in and it's substance that really keeps them there. And the first time that I really understood this is, is, is when I was pitching Tim Ferriss, the author, and he was, he, you know, he was investing in companies at that time. And he had just written a book called The 4-Hour Body. And the company that I was, I was creating, trying to get off the ground, was one-on-one -on -one health coaching right over your mobile phone. So I thought Tim would be a perfect investor. And so when I pitched him, I basically ran through, you know, the classic almost business school approach to pitching investors. I, I talked about the market size. I talked about the rising rates of diabetes and hypertension and obesity. And then at the very end of my, of my, of my pitch, I talked to him about the, um, the, the story that really sort of made me excited about getting into, about getting into this in the first place, which was my father's story. You know, my, my, my dad, when I was nine years old, my dad was, was in his forties. He was rushed to the hospital for an emergency triple bypass surgery. Um, and I remember going to the hospital and seeing him and felt, you know, feeling like he had aged 20 years overnight. And when we were leaving the hospital, they gave us a couple of pieces of paper. And on those couple of pieces of paper was basically how we should eat at home. And it had things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts, <laughs> you know? Oh, hey, we, we were an Indian family. Like we didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts. That really wasn't a part of our diet. 
And I knew that that just wasn't going to work. I just knew it. It wasn't going to work for my dad. And it was lucky for us that insurance helped pay for the cost of a nutritionist that we were able to find somebody who helped really make a program stick to who we were, to how we lived our lives. And I, and I believe that that's the reason that my father is alive today. Now, when I told Tim that story, you know, he looks at me and he's like, why, like, why the hell did you leave that story to the very end? Like, that is not a footnote. That really helps me understand what it is you're trying to do and what you're trying to create. Tell that story first. Then you can get into the numbers. Then you can talk about the millions of people in the world that are going through their own version of your father's story. But don't, but don't talk about the numbers and the, and the data and all that kind of stuff first. It doesn't really pull me in. And uh, you know, I ended up making that one simple tweak, which is I started with the story, and it just changed the tone of the conversation. I just found that now I had the investor's attention for the numbers, for the substance. So again, it's, it's stories that pull us in, and it's substance that really keeps us there. So you mentioned in the book, you talk about Tim Ferriss, and you, I was intrigued to hear that it took him 26 publishers to get his book published, mm. and something changed. He changed how he was writing it. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us about that a wee bit? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, what Tim, what Tim told me is that, you know, when he was writing the four hour work week, he, you know, he had written with the idea that, look, there, there are many, many people out there that, that need this book. So let me write for that, that audience. There are a lot of people right now who are disengaged with their work and that could use, uh, you know, a manual like this. And so he wrote it for a very broad audience and he was not, he was, he, he was turned down by 26 publishers in a row. And the, and the, the piece of advice that he was given is, why don't you write this book for one person? Instead of trying to write it for a mass market, why don't you choose one person that you're writing this for? And so he did. He chose. He cho he actually chose. He actually chose two friends, and he would alternate in between between these two friends that he knew intimately well. He knew were going through the version of the story that I think he was really trying to reach. And uh, when he did that, it made his writing so much sharper. It made it so much crisper because now he was writing to one person. And yet at the same time, when publishers read it, they felt like it was, it was for them. And as it turns out, it became an international bestseller. So millions upon millions of people felt like it was a book that really was speaking to them. But I, and I think that's one of the things that we sort of, kind of I, I at least missed, which is that when you write for one person, that doesn't necessarily mean that millions of people won't appreciate that. When I, when I built Rise for my father, it, it didn't mean that it wasn't a product that could help all the people out there that were going through his version of their own health illness. You talk about um, going beyond Google. And when I read that, I thought, gosh, there's a, it's going to take a lot of time. You know, there's a lot of time to get this package together. I'd love to explore that idea of going beyond Google and how you, how you do all this when you're not earning any money. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I so I think I think it's such an important question. You know, the, the way that going beyond Google came up was when I was sitting in the I was sitting in the the waiting room of a of a Hollywood producer named Brian Grazier, who also invests in companies and and uh, and he runs large teams and and I could just tell that the people who are around me inside the waiting room felt nervous about this meeting, you know? And so I went, when I went back to go see him, I said, Brian, you know, you have a, you have a room full of anxious people out there. And if I could give them one piece of advice, just one, what would it be? And he said, give me something that I can't easily find on Google. 
give me something that's not easily Googleable. And, and, and I love that because when I talk to decision maker after decision maker, what I found is that great presentations, great pitches, great interviews tend to be built on an insight. They tend, to, they tend to include something that you were able to bring into the room that maybe not a lot of other people know. Now, I know that sounds intimidating. I am getting back to your question of like, well, I mean, gosh, it sounds like a ton of research would be needed to do something like this. Not necessarily. Sometimes it's as simple as just taking one step beyond what we typically do. And I think what we typically do is we sit down, we, we open up our laptops and or, or open our phones up and we start doing some research. But what if you were to talk to customers? What if you were to test drive products? What if you were to, to attend an obscure meetup that maybe not a lot of people would, would attend virtually online? You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who was applying for a job at a, at a social media company. She's a mom returning to the workforce. And the trick of it was she didn't really use this product. It's very much like a Gen Z kind of focused product. But she did something really smart, which is that she, she, she interviewed every single one of her daughter's friends, every single one of them. And she asked them, what do you like about the product? What, what, what troubles you about the product? And then she had them send her screenshots of their experience. So now she walks into this interview. It's all over Zoom. And she brings this gallery of, of photos with her and, and starts kind of swiping through in the middle of the interview. I, I, I discovered this and I discovered this. And, and this, this hiring manager is so impressed that not only does she get the job, but right in the middle of the interview, he patches in one of the, one of his UX designers <laughs> to to come in and see some of this stuff that she's collected because it's 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 good for them too to see how a, a brand new person is reacting to their to their product. And so, um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take a lot more, but it takes a little bit more, and it takes some creative thought into what would most people do in my shoes, and how do I go one step further. So one other story, which I haven't mentioned in the speed read, is how you became the poster child for failure. Can you tell us about that? I get a phone call from an organizer one day of a conference called FailCon, which literally stands for Failure Conference. And it is a humbling, it's a humbling experience, Anna, when somebody calls you and says, hey, we're doing a conference on failure, and we would love for you to be the keynote speaker. <laughs> And I had, I had at that point in time started a couple of companies that didn't work out. I, I, I'd been on the receiving end of, of, you know, uh, canceled projects and, and, you know, missed promotions. And I felt, I felt very well, very well qualified to, to speak at this conference. So I did, and, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but there was a reporter from the New York times in the audience and, uh, you know, fast forward to me sitting in my apartment. I open up that day's New York Times, and there I am at the top of a major, major story on failure. It's my photo, my face, and the story, the cover, the article went so viral that at the time you could have Googled failure, and my face would have been one of your top search results. And so, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I subscribe to Eastern philosophy. I grew up in, in an environment where, you know, we talked a lot about Buddha and Hinduism. And, you know, uh, one of the things the Buddha always said is that when, whenever you, you are embarrassed or feel failure or feel pain, it, it's like two arrows are shot. One arrow is the arrow that actually punctures your skin. And there's nothing you can do about that arrow. Nothing. But there's a second arrow. And the second arrow is the arrow where you ascribe meaning to that pain. You ascribe meaning to what actually just happened. And a friend of mine reminded me of that story and said, well, you know, what kind of meaning can you create out of this? And so what I decided to do was I started to send that article out to people I admire proactively. Instead of hiding from it, 
I actually put it out front and center. And I would say in my emails, hey, as you can tell, I, I don't know what I'm doing from this article. Um, would you be willing to grab coffee with me? Would you be willing to jump on the phone with me? And the, the response rate to that email was just incredibly high. But not only that, but the, the conversations that I ended up having were just open and honest because they weren't, they weren't sort of under the, the guise of success. They were under the guise of failure. And that is when I started to realize that these people that I admire, and I think this generally is true, if you rewind the tape on their careers and you go back to the early, early stages, it's a very different story. And they went through the same failures, the same setbacks, and the level of polish and the way that they presented themselves very different than they are today. And that's inspiring to know because it means that any of us can take that journey. Thank you so much, Sunil. Beautiful conversation. And I hope that our listeners get a lot out of it because there's a whole lot of rich stuff in there. Thank you very much for talking to us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. Now to the backable take five in 60 seconds. One, it's conviction, not charisma, that makes ideas backable. You need to be the most passionate advocate for your idea or pitch. Two, steer into objection. Hit the objections first. Make it easy for people to be tuned into your pitch by removing those nagging objections up front. Three, choose one person. Make your pitch or share your idea as if you're telling it to that one person. Four, go beyond Google. Give something that can't be found on Google. Go one step beyond what might typically be done. And five, start with the story. It draws people in, focus on the substance, it keeps people with you. That's this episode of Books at Work, Done and Dusted. Please let me know what you think. Follow me on Instagram, Books at Work, or check out our website, booksatwork.co.nz. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's Books That Work, making work better. <laughs>